turn in your Bibles to Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. So we're going to take a, a brief respite from our series in First Peter on living as exiles, and we're actually going to preach through Advent, and actually today we're actually going to be talking about uh, those who were actually in exile at the time of writing. And so we're going to be in Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, we're going to be in verses 1 through 9. Now, let me give you a little bit of backdrop here. I think it's important for us to understand context. So in light of this, and I'm going to run through this pretty quickly, but I still want you to get a a pretty good big idea. In fact, I'm going to run through it so quickly, I'm going to try to cover about a thousand years of history in very short order. Now, let me first remind you about Isaiah himself. Isaiah wrote about the time of what you might look at in the Minor Prophets about Amos, Hosea. Now, Isaiah would have been considered a a major prophet. It wasn't because he was on the varsity. It was just simply a larger book. Um, But simply during the time of Amos, Hosea, Micah, it would have been during the season of the three main exiles. Now, he didn't necessarily cover all of those. And there is some dispute on authorship when it comes to Isaiah because 1 through 39 seems to deal with a particular season. And then you wake up in in chapter 40 and it seems to be dealing with Babylonian exile, but that was about a 150 year gap. Uh, It doesn't bring into question the veracity of the book. Uh, Some people just bring in some questions about authorship and who might have contributed to it. But either way, here's what we know. We know that Isaiah prophesied for the entirety of the book. Now, whether or not he lived through the entirety of what the book was, we don't know. But he actually prophesied of things that were long after he would show up on the scene. Now, I'll give you more of that in just a little bit. But there were increased tensions. At the time of his actual life and living, there were increased tensions going on with Assyria. Okay, now to give you, go back even further, if you remember, you have King David. That seems to, a lot of times King David, maybe you inch into Solomon when it comes to kind of um, Sunday school memory uh, of historical events biblically. Um, But if, if you recall, it was right after Solomon that essentially the kingdoms begin to split, right? So you have a split in the kingdoms. And essentially what happens, they split in the north and then in the south. The northern kingdoms actually ended up having about 10 tribes that went that way. And they were unfaithful tribes. Then in the south, you had the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, who then stayed in and around Jerusalem to do their best in continuing to worship God in the way that he had outlined all along. I, I mean, to make it the simplest way possible, the kingdoms essentially split over patience versus impatience when it came to waiting on the kingdom of heaven, waiting on a deliverer. Generally, this is the division that happens among the people of God or among those who are seeking after anything of significance. And that's simply that they grow impatient for the promises of God being met and then end up trying to see or convince themselves that they are to see, they are to make those promises happen for themselves in this world instead of waiting patiently for God to do so. You also had a few remnant from those 10 tribes in the north that ended up kind of joining with the two southern tribes because they, you know, it wasn't just because you were in the, this, one of the errant tribes up north didn't mean that they were totally unfaithful. There was some remnant that would come down to the south and stay there. So there were growing tensions with Assyria, okay? Now, Assyria, as it then rose to power and did begin to conquer, they conquered the northern kingdom. In the southern kingdom, you had this really wise, just incredibly uh, sensitive to how the Lord was going to lead him with the people, general named Hezekiah. Hezekiah led the armies of Israel, the, the faithful two tribes in the south, and there were some really shrewd moves on his part that actually kept them staved off 
Assyrian captivity for a, a bit. Eventually, it would, it would give way to another captivity, which would be one that you probably would know again as the Babylonian captivity, if anything, because of who led that, which was Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? So then after that, though, you have then the third captivity or the third it wasn't really a captivity because of what happened, but you then had Persia come in. So you've got Assyria, then Babylon, and then Persia. Now, Persia was led by a guy named Cyrus. What's interesting is that beginning in chapter 40, there's allusions, and eventually in chapter 45, with specifics later on in even chapter 55 of Isaiah, where Isaiah is prophesying about this leader, even names him being Cyrus. Cyrus would be one who would come in, would conquer Babylon, and in doing so, God used Cyrus, who was an ungodly man, but he used him as an instrument because basically he saw how wasteful it was with all their resources and everything else to keep holding captive the children of Israel. So it was through actually Cyrus in leading Persia to conquer Babylon that freed the children of Israel, but it happened in waves. Now the time with this with the Old Testament for you and for all of us would simply be, if you remember the names of Ezra and Nehemiah, that you would have this idea of where Ezra would take one group and about 10 years later, Nehemiah would take another group. Ezra took an initial group back to Jerusalem out of captivity from Babylon because they were freed by Cyrus of Persia and they would begin to establish worship, but they were unsafe. So then Nehemiah just really feels the burden for what's going on in Jerusalem. And what he does is he goes to the king at the time and says, look, I, this is on my heart. This is what I should do. And he says, please go and do it. And so he takes another wave of exiles back to Jerusalem and that's where they build the walls. But again, you know, too often we think of Nehemiah in terms of, well, it's the wall building time. You know, that's when we actually have sermons about raising money for building a new sanctuary. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's so used so wrongly so often, but that's only about half of the book is the establishment of those walls. The rest of it is about the centrality of God's word among the lives of his people. But that's not the end of that story because as it goes on, there's still, you know, you can understand they're coming back to Jerusalem. The walls are starting to be rebuilt. There were even some attackers that were coming in and they were resisted. And yet it was about 20 years of almost nothing going on. They were so excited that maybe this is the time we're being reestablished as a people, as a kingdom. But that 20 years caused a lot of angst. And in that 20 years following Nehemiah, establishing the walls and everything else, the people began to intermarry and mingle with other nations. Now, this was a very common practice that would occur with the children of Israel over and over and over again. They would be bored or they would grow impatient and they would just meld with whatever and whoever kind of conquered them. Now, I mention all that kind of in the big picture because if you go beyond that, what you start to enter into is that 400-year period between the Testaments, Okay. So again, if you go back, you've got Assyria, Babylon, Persia, they get freed, they go back to Jerusalem. Then you have pretty much the rest of the minor prophets, the close of the Old Testament, and you have a 400-year period where during that 400 years, that's where you have people like Alexander would come in. Or, and, and, and really, even before then, there, were, there was a, a, a revolt, um, and I, I can't really get into to that time-wise, but there was, yeah, that's where the Maccabeans come in. There's a Maccabean revolt against, I think his name was uh, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who had come in and conquered Jerusalem and brought in some false practices and desecrated the temple. It was a very short period, but very significant. Still, they weren't a real kingdom people. It paved the way when Alexander the Great came through and conquered much of the known world and introduced a ton of culture. Again, God's sovereign hand is still over it because 
Greek world becomes central to the entire world, which actually then centralized the language, which God eventually used that even in the temple and the outer courts to the nations, as the gospel would go forth to the nations, that a common language, it was at just the right time Christ came. It wasn't as if God was bound by the history of men. He's orchestrating the history of men to culminate with Christ coming at first, and again, he will come again. But at the tail end of Alexander, who was really great at conquering and really great at just saturating people with culture, was really unorganized. And that's where you had the Romans come in. So you had the known world pretty much ready to be taken over by someone who would come in with some kind of structure and the Romans knew structure. We get most of our governing systems from Roman culture. So, I mean, they really knew how to come in, set up house, and they did. So again, this is the backdrop for when then Christ comes, you have Herod, you have others who are leading out in Roman rule. And in that Roman rule, they are being, again, not a people. So they had year after year, decade after decade, century after century of hoping and wanting to be a people and yet always being conquered, always being ruled over. It makes sense that they would feel a little bit left alone by God. And yet, in all of God's mercy, He still, as being merciful, still caused them to repentance because they were in this cycle of in Assyria. Now we're going all the way back. Back when Assyria conquered them, they grew weary of being conquered and they began to adapt. So you know what they did? They started to worship idols just like the Assyrians, the path of least resistance. They grew tired. Maybe this is our lot in life. They ceased being faithful, waiting on God because being faithful in a world against you is hard. This reflects very much on what we talked about in 1 Peter, very much a tie-in. There's persecution for the people who follow after Christ. Now, in adopting that, in adopting those practices, there would be prophets that would come in and say, God is going to judge, and yet he is merciful. But repent now while the time is right now. Come to him. So it's really in that backdrop of Assyria captivating the people, the people adapting to Assyrian culture and beginning to worship idols that we start to enter into the fray of Isaiah chapter 40, 41, 42, and on, okay? So with that, and I know that's a lot, but at the same time, I hope it gives you a big picture and hopefully there were some things that you, you certainly were very familiar to you that you could kind of tag on to to understand kind of what we're about to dive into. Now, I want you to look, first of all, at chapter 41. I think there's some significant things here for us to look at. If you look at chapter 41, and we're actually going to look first at verses 17 through 20 before we read 21 through 29, because I want you to hear and see the heart of God for his people. Now, again, let me remind you, the message today is about hope, okay? It's about Jesus being the hope of the world. In verse 17, it says, when the poor and needy seek water and there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights And fountains in the midst of the valleys, I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain and the pine together, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. What a a beautiful, merciful, and gracious passage 
that when people are hungry and hurting, that God wants to richly provide. And in that kindness, he desires for it to lead to their return to him in worship. But now let's look at verse 21. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods, do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing and your work is less than nothing and abomination is he who chooses you. This is the same God speaking, but he's, he's speaking out to idols. But you can understand, he's speaking to the same people, the people who are following him, who are hurting. But what have they done in their despair? They've gone after idols and God is saying, I am the God who has created these things in the previous verses. I am the God who has made these things and will provide for you. And you are running after idols. But he does it through this tactic of addressing the idols themselves and saying, okay, come through. If you're a God, do what I do. Be merciful like I'm merciful. Provide like I provide. Deliver like I deliver. Do it if you can. But he says, no, you are nothing. And not only are they nothing, though, he goes further and says they're an abomination. You know why? Because when we go after other gods or seek after other things, which is idolatry, to satisfy us in the way that only God can, we are not only doing something that is wasteful and neglectful, we are actually doing something that is abominable. Isaiah, with the word of the Lord coming through him, is painting the picture of what hopelessness feels like. You don't understand, we don't understand the hope that we need, the hope that we seek after, unless we really get a grasp on just how desperately hopeless we are apart from him. So they've been in Assyria. They're adapting to their practices. They're, they're looking for idols to actually give them what only God can. He goes on, he says, I stirred up one, verse 25, I stirred up one from the north and he has come from the rising of the sun and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar as the potter treads clay who declared it from the beginning that we may know and and beforehand that we might say he is right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, they are here, or or here they are, sorry. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one. Among those, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. What incredible imagery, right? I mean, these are weighty objects, metal, he says, but they're just wind. That's how useless they are. That's, that's the kind of gravitas they carry of significance or meaning. I love that at times we get a little glimpse into the personality of God as he deals with his people, but it's in that backdrop then that we begin verse one of chapter 42. Here's what he says, behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. 
He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So much of what our God does in establishing his godness before his people is to say his word stands and it is good and it is sound and it comes to pass. In a sense, this is what we're stepping into this morning. We already have stepped into this morning. That he has prophesied and he has made clear and it has already come to pass. Now again, there's no real time to get into it, but please keep in mind that oftentimes with Isaiah and other prophetic literature, that oftentimes, and I would say this actually, especially with Daniel, you don't, they didn't always see a a big gap between the first and second advents as far as what our God would accomplish. They didn't necessarily always see it perfectly as far as to scale, like to time, but that the Lord was going to do this. He would be merciful, he would deliver, but then he'd also come and he would judge. And you might hear that in the same passages, but bottom line, it's going to come about. He's going to do his justice. Even in this passage, you hear that he will not relent. He will not grow weary until justice has been met out with all the nations. We know that's not going to happen until he comes again. But he entered into the world as one who dealt gently and kindly with those who were bruised reeds and kind of burned out wicks. To accomplish the work, to show mercy, to draw in many, to avoid the kind of justice that he brings one day. Now, simply enough, the fact that Christ is our hope, our only hope in this world. There's just two things I want to bring out from the passage. First of all, we have a hope for justice. We also have a hope for deliverance. It really is that simple. Verses one through four speak of God's justice. But there's hope for justice. And that's part of the hope that we clamor for. We want those who are evil to be punished and we want there to be relief um, and reward for those who do good. It's built into us. I'm not gonna mention the the children's names or what they do, but, but I've heard stories, I've heard tell that there are many households who are filled with this phrase of that's not fair. I've only heard it from other households. I've never heard that in my own household ever. Preacher shouldn't lie. But it is one of those things. And, and I don't know about, you know, and again, all I can speak to is really you dads out there. But, you know, isn't there something in you that just want to says, I'll show you justice. <laughs> if you only knew how good you had it. And you want to just go on. I mean, you want, as surely as you sit on your front porch with the guys and say the older you get, the better you were, especially at high school football. Um, there's also this part of you that wants to go back and, and actually uh, you, you, you want to recount just how horrible your childhood actually was. Now, some of you did have some really difficult and terrible upbringings, but um, yeah, yeah we, we want to share stories. It, it's, it's more than the uphill both ways kind of, kind of talk. It, I don't know of anything that really gets under my skin more 
than, than that kind of uh, uh, clamoring of it's not fair, it's not just. And part of that is because I don't know how to be as merciful as I should while also being patiently and calmly just. Try to be just, but I get real impatient with it. Take Christmas for example. I've shared this with you a little bit before, but it was just in passing. But if you, you know, if, if you try to do, and in fact, I stopped doing this early in life. Um, it was about the same time that I was, uh, I, I would give a serious evil eye to, to relatives that gave any of my kids noise-making toys. <laughs> or the joke of some assembly required that meant no sleep. You know, any of those things at all. Um, I, I tried to shut those th- things down early in my parenting life. Um, you know, also tried to shut down this, you know, game that I would play of, oh, I'm just going to kind of secretly kind of hold off the really great gift and put it off in the corner. Because what happens is if you do that too early, then the kid doesn't really know what's coming. And they might even before that gets revealed, start to whine, um, you know, after they play with the boxes and not the actual toy that came in those boxes. And, and you think of all the money you could have saved. Um, and as you go through this, this lament, uh, and yet you go, okay, I got the real zinger waiting for them. It's hidden off in the corner. And if they start to whine about not getting the one gift they really wanted, and you know it's sitting over in the corner, you're just not going to tell them. No. I'm, I'm, or you want to milk it. You actually want them to suffer more. This is awful. This is terrible. Those who laugh loudest know best. I heard you, Gail. But what I'm saying is, there is this sense of justice that we want, to, we want it to be overcome so much with mercy as parents. We want to show that ultimately, but that's a pretty, that fuse is pretty, uh, I shouldn't say fuse, that's telling of me, isn't it? Um, that, that length of time that we can afford that is pretty short, not so with our God. But, but please understand something that as surely as the greatest gift that he's given us that he prophesies about, the fact is actually he talks about it all the time. All throughout the scriptures, all throughout the 66 books, the greatest gift that he has for us has been presented from the very first verses of the text of our canon, of the Pentateuch, the oldest written literature on the planet. He has never stopped talking about it. He has always pointed to what corner of the world it's hidden in, so to speak, and it will come and then it's revealed and it's still not acceptable. It's rejected because it doesn't look quite like people thought it would look like, this Christ, this Messiah. Well, it's incumbent upon us now that we've seen that he has come and we have the closure of the scriptures. We have the canon that's been completed. We see the references back to historical events and historical people. And we also still hear prophecies of what's to come. We need to do better at understanding what is it to mean to hope for justice according to God. When he says, behold my servant, I think first of all, we have to understand that our hope for justice begins with a holy servant. And part of that holy servant that we have to understand is that there is this beholding aspect. We need to look, open our eyes, gaze upon, stop for a little bit and really take stock of who is before us. Who is this Christ that is being prophesied about, this servant that's to come? Hundreds and seven, probably 730 ish years after this is written is when Christ actually shows up. It's like three times the age of our country. You can understand the people wondering if it's actually going to happen. Behold, pay attention, look upon him. 
everywhere in scripture that we get the opportunity to gaze upon the likeness of our Savior, either prophesied about or in real time when he enters in and is incarnate, takes on flesh, or when he's referenced as the one to come with a sword and a flame coming out of eyes and mouth and just glorious, we need to stop and take a look. He is God's servant. He is the one he upholds. He's chosen. He's set aside. That chosen is basically an interchangeable word with holy, set apart, called. In whom my soul delights, which speaks of God's complete acceptability of who this Messiah, this servant is going to be, who he is in character, who he is in work. God doesn't say it's acceptable as if the good outweighs the bad. He says it because he is holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, H-O-L-Y. He's completely and entirely pure and glorifying of the Lord. He is, in fact, God, this servant to come. Behold, the holy servant of God, the only one that, he's, that he talks like this around. Acceptable, chosen, perfect. He's put his spirit upon him. He'll bring forth justice to the nations. The spirit of the Lord resting upon him, just as we know that when Christ came and was baptized and the dove fell, and the spirit of God did rest upon him. And he began to speak of a justice that the world didn't understand because it didn't just include action, it included heart and intent. Because God has character and God in his character is perfection. It says he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. This is all one continuous thought. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Now if you read through this, starting in verse 2 going on, there's really, even though there's an urgency to this, the basic idea here is that he's not going to look and sound like you would think someone like this is going to look and sound like. He's trying to raise their attention to what he's going to be doing is deal with you very gently and mercifully, with great kindness and grace, truth and love. You know, John chapter 1 is one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture about the description of who Christ is, who the Messiah is. And he speaks of this, that he walks in grace and truth. This is the servant. He has this holy mercy. In fact, let's look at where that's referenced in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 12. Flip over to Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 17, or actually we'll begin in verse 15. Just prior to verse 15, we have this encounter with Christ at the synagogue of a man with a withered hand. Okay, just to set this up. And in verse 12, it says, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. Now, again, he was being countered by the rulers of the day saying you basically can't do miracles on, on the Sabbath, on Saturday. You know, and Christ is saying that's not at all what my father who kind of set this whole thing up is even talking about. 
Again, what does that do? That begins to set up God's, reintroduce God's idea of justice and mercy at play. It says, stretch out your hand, the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, verse 15, withdrew from there and many followed him and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. Okay, remember? He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. But a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. And ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen. My beloved with whom, I'm, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. And he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud. Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not quench. Until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope which gives us some definition and gives us some description and in a sense some fulfilling commentary when he says he will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. So go back to Isaiah 42. The idea here is is that this servant brings great mercy and great grace but he doesn't overlook the real need. You remember how many times that he would go to someone and the world would be ready to judge them or cast stones. And he would say things like, you know, any of you who are without sin, please cast the first one. But then even after that was dispersed, he still would turn and say, repent, go and sin no more. I mean, Christ never dealt graciously and mercifully with the physical needs without it also being, in a sense, an avenue or a means by which he would declare what the greatest need was for them spiritually, to be restored to their creator. We have a holy servant. We have this holy mercy on display. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. I mean, consider the condition of the people here. He says that they are bruised reeds. They're faintly burning wicks. They are worn out. Some are faithfully holding on. Some are not giving in to idolatry. He's dealing gently with many to draw them, to bring them to repentance, to bring them to himself, to make for himself a people, but juxtapose it to the character of the Savior. He says, he will not grow faint or be discouraged until his job, his work is finished. And he's the hope of the world, the Gentiles. Our Christ that came, that we celebrate at Christmas It's his character, it's the character of our Savior that we rest upon to save us. Nothing in our ability to even attach ourselves to that Savior. To put it another way, you don't have to have strong faith, you just have to have faith of a mustard seed, the tiniest possible bit of faith. And it's even then not the faith that saves you because the reason that that faith can be so weak is because it's in a Savior who is so strong. 
When you consider the condition of the people juxtaposed to the character of the servant, you realize that your acceptability before God is wholly based on the character of the servant and not the strength of the people. This is the servant who's coming. This is the servant who has come. This is the servant who will come again for us. He will get the job done. Holy justice will be met out. It will happen. We have a holy servant who shows holy mercy who will bring holy justice. He will not stop until that justice has been performed. But again, remember, he says that God has said that he's acceptable, not the people. Now, he'll even get further into that here in just a second. But please understand, this nature of justice is simply that God has holy, perfect requirements, and those requirements are met by this servant. And if we see anything at all in the book of Isaiah, really from this point further, it's how radically, radically unacceptable and incapable of actually doing anything for themselves the children of Israel are. And for that matter, all of humanity. It's only the servant that is acceptable to the Father. So justice for God, it's not mean-spiritedness. It's the very nature of the holy, creator, sovereign God. He demands perfection because he himself is perfect. He cannot have sin in his presence. And he will continue to do his work until justice is perfect. Now, as we look at the New Testament, we understand that to mean this. That for those without Christ, it is just. It's not mean. God could never be declared to be mean. God could never be declared to be unjust. The worst thing that possibly could happen to you is God's justice apart from Christ's intervention. Because justice would be all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The consequence of sin is separation, torment, hell. When we reject what God has afforded and provided, the just response is the same as that of a crime. But it's cosmic. So it would be just of God for people to spend eternity apart from him because that's what sin demands. But it's also just of God that when he says, my acceptable servant who has come for people and when they put faith in him, when they look upon him, when they behold my servant who is Christ, who is God in the flesh, When they behold him, I have poured out all of that torment and wrath and judgment for sin on his head on the cross. When these people will then say, I look at Christ to have done that for me, God, that means the the biblical theological word would be you are justified. You, justice has now occurred. If your faith is in that servant, in that Christ, then everything that is punishable Sin-wise has been bore by Christ alone for you, justice has been served. And then when God says acceptable to Christ because Christ is in you, he says that you are acceptable to him. That's justice. But in the process of justice, do we not declare how merciful and patient God was to get us to the point of justification? 
We suffer, we're broken, we are hurt. And he patiently, lovingly, kindly keeps bringing the gospel to mind over and over again through faithful friends, through family, through the prayers of faithful saints who have gone before. Kindness, justice, mercy. We see little pieces of it, but that kindness ultimately for those that are in Christ wins the day. And once they then in that kind moment express to God, that they trust him alone, then justice has been served and it will never be served upon you again because Christ has had that, has bore that weight of justice forever for, this, for those who are his. He is the hope of the world. He won't stop until all of the world has been satisfied in justice, either through damnation or redemption. We also have a hope for deliverance, verse 5. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it and gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and and, and, and and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Just stop there. We have hope for deliverance. This hope comes from the creator. There is no hope for deliverance in idols. Do you hear the the language? He keeps separating himself from what they've been doing and what others around them have been doing with idols. They are a waste. They're water, they're vapor, they're air. They look weighty, but they carry nothing but condemnation and abomination. That's all they can offer you. Now you may, you know, you may think that you've never really worshiped an idol, but the fact is when Christ came, he came to expose and address our idolatries and to bring to himself a people who would worship him and him alone. So first of all, I would say this, if you are without Christ, then first of all, you're without hope in the world, and I promise you that you have an idol. Now, I will also say this, that for those who are Christians who have been delivered before and have seen the goodness of God, you've tasted the goodness of God, and perhaps you are genuinely a believer, you have a tendency in your impatience of seeing God keep his promises, you have a tendency to go back and dabble in some idolatry. It could be something as innocuous and acceptable in our culture as sports or things that are more of a vice that our world keeps trying to normalize more and more. But they are nonetheless idols. They offer you no hope. They offer you no relief. They offer you nothing. And you know better. You know this. I know this. I've done this. This is the creator. You know what this means? He has designed us for something. He's made us, he's fashioned us individually and as a people to be people who are his via this servant that's to come. It also means though that he is able. Do you remember back in chapter 41, we read at the beginning how unable idols are to do anything? He would say, call it forth if you can. Make things better, make things bad. 
Do something if it's wrong. My baseball coach in high school, I really hate that I thought that just now because I really didn't like that coach, but I just remember that he used to tell me that all the time. Lumpkin, do something even if it's wrong. It wasn't because I was lazy. He just didn't like the way that I, my stance and uh, the things. But anyway, um, uh, so anyway, got to move on past that. But the idea here is that because he's creator, he is both the designer and he is able. He's able to bring about justice perfectly. And he will. It may seem slow, but it will absolutely occur. So it comes from the creator, this holy deliverance, this hope of deliverance comes from a creator and it comes by God's standard though. Look at what he says. He says, he's done this. He says, I am the Lord, verse six. I have called you in righteousness. I've called you in righteousness. It is God's standard that you have to be delivered to, not yours. I mean, as opposed to what many may say, God doesn't get reconciled to us. We are reconciled to God. And the standard of reconciliation is God's and God's alone. If for any other reason, because of what he already said, which is, I'm creator. I've designed it this way. I fashioned this way. He calls us by his standard of righteousness. And that righteous standard, as he said earlier, and he's really going to say it resoundingly here in just a second, is only met by this servant. This servant with whom is accept, with whom he is well pleased, who is acceptable to him, who the Spirit is upon. his standard so if we really have if we really want to understand what it is to have hope and hope to really understand our purpose to meet our creator to meet our savior our God if we're going to understand the real nature and essence of what Christmas really is all about we have to understand God's righteousness we have to understand something about God's standard because otherwise we will veer into something very earthly and essentially it'll be very much well, at least I haven't, and then fill in the blanks. Or at least I'm better than, and it's some name other than Yahweh or Jesus. It is God's righteous standard. And you have to ask yourself, do you meet that standard of perfection? And before you say, well, of course, I mean, of course not. Nobody does. Exactly right. There is none righteous, according to Romans 3, no, not one. But Christ only Christ. So this hope for deliverance comes from a creator. It comes according to his standard and it ultimately comes for his glory. If you look in verse six, when he says, I am the Lord, and you look down in verse eight, he says, I am the Lord again. He is declaring that this is my name. This is who I am. This is what I'm all about. And this, this for his glory stuff is fantastic. If you look at it, he says, I am the Lord called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. This is descriptive of the servant. Let that sink in for just a minute. Go back to the very first word in, in, in the chapter, behold. This is descriptive of the servant. Behold. 
He's the covenant keeper. He's the light of the world. Doesn't this hearken forward to Galatians? I think it does. Galatians 3, 15 and 16, where Paul is saying that the covenant promises that were made to Abraham were made to seed, not to seeds, singular, not plural. And that seed is Christ. When God made a covenant promise that he would bless Abraham with a nation that would be God's own people, that covenant promise was made to one person. And many of the Jews still today have it confused with just them as a people. And many Gentiles today either think they could not possibly be included or if they are, God just kind of means it ubiquitously and it's just kind of this oozy acceptability of God just being kind of nice and it's going to be okay. I don't know what it means, but it's going to be fine. I'm sure it's fine. It's not fine. What that means is to be able to have hope and hope is always attached to promises. What, so, and that's what keeps it from being wishful thinking, right? Because that's, that's how we use it. Oh, I hope I get this for Christmas. Look, I may say that like you're a little kid, but I'm 52 and I still have some things I hope I get for Christmas. It's wishful thinking. But when it comes to hope with him, it is banked upon by promises. This will occur. But we need some things to stretch out our patience and endurance until it's fully realized. He has said that I'm going to make, I'm going to provide for you a covenant keeper. I'm going to provide for you someone who is a light to the world, a light to the Gentiles. And this servant is Christ. This covenant keeper, according to Galatians 3, 15 and 16, is Christ. The light of the world whom John speaks about is Christ. And then once Christ ascended, you know who became the temple? You know who became the light set on a hill? His people. Why? Because Christ, the hope of glory, dwells in us. This is for God's glory. It's his means, it's his ends. It's not to elevate men and it's not to give us heaven on earth. It is to give us himself. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. The children of Israel had adapted to Assyrian practices to try to ease the pain of being in captivity. They had forgotten the significance of what it meant to be imprisoned. Do we not try to buffer the effects of our sin through greed, materialism, lust? We just string together a bunch of short-term fulfillment sins, addictions, we do. We adapt the practices around us to ease the pain of what it is to be in a dungeon, a prisoner in darkness. What Isaiah is doing here is painting the true picture of those who do not trust in this servant who's to come in Christ. Every once in a while you taste it. You know how? You become a bruised reed or a smoldering wick. You are just about snuffed out. There are times you taste and feel 
the absence of anything good. Do you remember over in first, back in First Peter in our series when he says, and even if necessary for a little while, you suffer? It is good of God to let you taste the emptiness of your own pursuits if it means leading you to tasting that he alone is good. That, go, that, that blows out of the water any perspective that God is bad and actually jettisons him all the way to he is the greatest good. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give no other, nor my praise to carved idols. He will not share his glory with another. This is all for his glory, his pleasure. Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare. What is he saying there? Simply this, that what has been spoken of before and you've, like things were prophesied before and then they came to be and you saw that. So the nation split in two, north and south, and there was captivity and it happened. And more is going to happen. And eventually Isaiah prophesies about the results of the Babylonian captivity as well as Cyrus coming to release the people. Incredible. Just as surely as this happened, this is going to happen. And we see the same thing in principle. We hear of Christ hundreds, even thousands of years prophesied to come. We see that he came. We celebrate this time of year that he came. And the things that are still yet to come, he will come again. But not in deliverance, but in judgment. So that justice is perfectly fulfilled. He's telling us of these things even now. This speaks of his mercy. This speaks of his kindness to say there are things yet to come. Pay attention. Behold, look upon the servant and do it now. Do it now. Now, if you're without Christ, I would say, have, have you not had enough experience with pain to know that pain makes you long for something else, whether it's relief or a different, change, a different set of circumstances? And have you not felt like you, like Solomon, have gone to the end of all these pursuits only to realize how empty all the pursuits are? Even good ones? Wife, kids, home, job. They don't satisfy. Not the things that only God can. I implore you to behold the servant today, the one who eventually would come, in the form of a baby, would live a perfect life that God required, would die a death that we deserve, was raised from the dead and is alive and intercedes for us. Is he calling you to himself today? Christian, you've dabbled in idolatry before. Let these words sink in just to show you how disparaging it really is. The great disparity between living for a holy God and going after abominable things. As Christians, we need to have a redress of what it means to sin so that our repentance and our healing can occur so that we can live freely to be the light of the world while we are here until he comes. Look, Christmas can afford a lot of pain for a lot of people. I mean, for many of us, it is absolutely, you know, favorite time of year, a lot of, 
romantic notions and, and sentimentality. But the fact is, it can also bring back a lot of pain. I'm not at all desiring to be callous to that pain. And, and nor am I trying to put on God something that doesn't belong on him with your perspective of what he does in his sovereignty related to your pain. But I do want to remind you, or at least I want to ask you this, do you feel a bit like a bruised reed? Do you feel a bit like a smoldering wick, like you're about to be snuffed out, you're, you're just at the end? Let those things have their effect and look upon the servant who, according to Isaiah, doesn't give up. He doesn't stop. And he will deal with you mercifully. Come to him and let him do the work that you cannot do, that you are worn out trying to do for yourself and rest in him for your own salvation. Let's pray. Our God, we are thankful for your word that is consistent. The continuity is astounding that with so many authors over so many years that this resounding redemptive story arc of this servant coming, your servant who would keep your promises, who would meet your demands so that those who would simply have faith in that servant, in Christ, would become your people. God, my prayer is that we would faithfully be a people of your own possession, that we would faithfully worship and glorify you and this servant living in the power of the Spirit of God as a church. But Lord, I also pray that as we seek to be a light in this community and in the world, that it would be Christ alone that illumines our conversation, our character, our behavior, and yes, even technically our speech of sharing the gospel, the good news. And Lord, may you even bring some to yourself this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.